Good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll be in verses 1 through 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. This is the first sermon of a new sermon series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. As each time I have the privilege to preach, we'll be in this book together. Certainly Donald will continue in Genesis, uh, but from time to time we'll study 1 Thessalonians together. It's a wonderful book filled with both, both encouragement and instruction, and so I pray that we'll all be blessed by it along the way. And so let's read 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10 together. Paul, Silvanus, or, or Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we were. We were proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, our cry this morning is that all we have is Christ. Just as we sung, hallelujah, all we have is Christ. I know that is my only hope here, up here this morning. I know it's all of our hope this morning. I pray that the word would be preached in power this morning and with much conviction, that my love for you would grow as well as those in this room, that all of our love for you would grow. Help us to be a church that loves the word, loves one another, and as the text emphasizes, that we would be thankful, that we'd be a thankful church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Acts chapter 16, God calls Paul to preach the gospel in a place called Macedonia. On this journey, he gets to Thessalonica, where the gospel is preached, as the text shows us, in both word and power. Meaning that when Paul preached the word in Thessalonica, people repented and believed, and a church started there. Word meaning that the gospel was spoken, power meaning that conversions happened. And so as Paul often does after a period of time, he's writing back to this church that he planted and is reminding them of what he taught them from the very beginning. In this case, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were the ones who preached the gospel first in Thessalonica. They originally brought the gospel there, and now they're writing back to them. Like many of the New Testament letters, 1 Thessalonians begins with a greeting, a very distinct greeting, followed by Paul being thankful and also a prayer that he has for them. He's continuing to pray for them while while he's away. So a greeting, a thanksgiving, and a prayer. It's often tempting when we read the beginning of a letter like this, the introductory parts of a letter like this, to want to rush through the greeting, to want to rush through the thanksgiving, to want to rush through the prayer. But I want to urge you this morning that these aren't empty words here at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. It's important to see how Paul's greeting, his thanksgiving, and his prayer are intentional, and not only the encouragement, but the discipleship 
of the Christians here in Thessalonica. Paul sets aside the fact that this is an imperfect church. And he begins the letter with ways that he's thankful to God for them. He starts it off with grace, that God's favor would be on them and peace, that they would be in perfect harmony with God. He could have started any way. He could have started it with instruction or correction, but instead he begins the letter by giving them grace and peace, and then he goes into ways that he's thankful for the church. He's thankful to God for the evidence of faith that he sees in their life. He's thankful to God for their godliness, which leads to a very practical question, a point of application for you right from the very start this morning, and it's this. Do you thank God for the evidence of grace that you see in the life of our church? Do you thank God for the evidence of grace that you see in the life of our church? Is Abner Creek Baptist Church a perfect church? No. Are there areas where we need to grow and help? Absolutely. But I was struck when I was reading the first part of 1 Thessalonians this week that Paul doesn't just begin by ways that the church needs to grow, but he begins with ways that God has shown the church grace and ways that he's thankful for that. And so as I was preparing this week, I began to think about this very thing, the areas of grace that I see in the life of our church. And these areas are overwhelming as I began to think about this. There's good discipleship happening publicly through our core classes, through our community groups, through our family ministries, our men's and women's ministries, and other, other ministries. I thank God for that. I thank God for the areas of grace I see in many of your lives. I was thinking of many of your faces this week as I was preparing for the sermon. There's a genuine love for one another that I see in you. And I even hear stories of some of you building relationships with your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends to the point, to the, for the purpose of being able to share the gospel with them. I'm so encouraged by this. And I thank God for all of these things. I could go on and on this morning by doing that. I had countless scenarios, countless situations in my mind that I was thinking about, countless people that I was thinking about. Paul knows that the church of the Thessalonians was in no way perfect. In fact, later in the letter, he does give them correction and he gives them encouragement, areas of growth. But it begins by expressing an overwhelming thanks that he has for them and the godliness and the evidence of faith that he sees in them. I would encourage you to think this way throughout the week. What areas do you see evidence of faith in the brothers and sisters around you? Where do you see good discipleship happening at Abner Creek Baptist Church? Where you see it, thank God for it. Remember that God deserves the praise when there's evidence of grace around us. God deserves the praise for the evidence of grace, for the discipleship, for the areas of growth that's happening here in our church family. Paul makes it clear that it's not him or the church that deserves the praise, but God alone. He attributes their conversion, their sanctification, or their discipleship, and their endurance to God. On top of the thanksgiving, he also prays for the Thessalonians as he remembers the specific ways that he's thankful for them. So the thanksgiving leads to a prayer. And so we have another immediate point of application early on in the text that we should constantly be in prayer for one another, constantly be in prayer for our church family. Thank God for each other. Constantly be in prayer for one another. His, his thanks and prayer, prayer is flowing from the things that he remembers about them. Let's look at verse 2. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. These are the things that he's remembering 
about them that leads them to be thankful, that leads, them, leads him to pray for them. And it's this verse, verse 2, that helps us identify the main point of the text today, which is this, if you're taking notes. Paul is thankful to God for the genuine evidence of faith he, he sees in the Thessalonian church. Paul is thankful to God for the genuine evidence of faith that he sees in the Thessalonian church. We see that he remembers their work that is produced by their faith, their labor that is motivated by their love and their steadfastness or their endurance that is inspired by their hope, their hope in Christ. And a couple other ways we can word this is that God has saved the Thessalonians. He is saving them and he will save them once for all, that they've been justified, that they are being sanctified and that they will be glorified one day. Paul's thankful for all of these things. He's remembering all of these things about them. He's remembering their godliness. He's remembering their evidence of faith and he thanks God for it while continuing to pray for them that this would continue to be the case in their life. He remembers these three clear evidences that he's thankful for. Evidence of conversion, evidence of discipleship, evidence of endurance, all three of which should be evidences here at Abner Creek as well. These are three marks of the Thessalonian church that Paul remembers, and he begins to explain further in verses 4 through 10. And these three marks can serve as the guideline for us today as we're looking for evidence of God's grace in our own church, that the church should know the evidence of conversion, the church should show the evidence of conversion. It's our first point, that the church should show evidence of discipleship. Our second point, and that the church should show evidence of endurance. Paul is thanking God for genuine evidence of faith he sees in the Thessalonian church. And these three points will follow as our outline. First, the church should show evidence of conversion. Or simply put, their faith, verse 4, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. Paul is confident of this. There is no hesitation of whether or not they are Christians because something is different about the Thessalonians. He doesn't say that we think that God has chosen you. No, we know that God has chosen you because of the way that the gospel was received. Remember, not only in word, but it was received in power. Verse five, because the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. This didn't just go in one ear and out the other for the, Thessalonian, for the Thessalonians. This took root in their lives, which were then changed by the gospel to follow. I think of Jesus' parable of the sower when I was reading these verses. It's a helpful illustration for us. The Thessalonians are the good soil. So in the parable of the sower, you have, have the different soils and, and, and the good soil proves to be the Christian where the seed falls on the good soil and it, and it produces grain some a hundredfold. Well, when I'm thinking about the Thessalonian church, I, 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 see, I see them as the good soil. They're an example of what Jesus meant by this. The gospel is preached to the Thessalonians by Paul and they're converted. And then there's much fruit that flows from that. There's much evidence of faith in their lives after hearing the gospel preached. This is what true salvation looks like. Verses four and five make it clear that the Thessalonians were the real deal and they proved to be so because of the way that they received the gospel. With this in mind, the question becomes this, are you the real deal? Are you the real deal? When you hear the word preached, how do you respond? Are you the good soil? Are you cold to it? Does it just bounce right off of you without thought? Do you not have an appetite for it? If this is the case, I would urge you to ask God to give you an appetite 
for his word. Ask God to to help you to be the good soil that receives the word, where it lands on your ears in power and it changes your heart. Pray that you wouldn't be cold to the commands of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Church family, the gospel is not foolishness. It is not folly. The gospel is power. And there's a room full of us today that testifies to this. And there's a, there's a group full of Christians in Thessalonica that we're reading about that testify this, to this as well. Their lives were transformed by the gospel. And so be encouraged. If you hear the word preached and you read your Bible and you love it and you, and you respond to it, rejoice in that. You're experiencing the power of the word of God at work in your life. Paul and the guys with him preached this gospel, preached this word with much conviction, the text tells us. They believed wholeheartedly what they preached to the Thessalonians. And then their character matched that conviction about the message. They practiced what they preached, if you will. The gospel proved to be powerful in Paul and Silas's and Timothy's life. The power then led them to preach with conviction, which led to the Thessalonians hearing the gospel. And then when the Thessalonians heard the gospel, it hit them in power and they were transformed by it, which leads to the second evidence that the church should be marked by, that the church should show evidence of discipleship. The church should show evidence of discipleship. Let's look at verse six together. Verse six says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. A definition of discipleship can be simplified in this way, helping others follow Jesus. I got that definition from Mark Dever in a book he wrote on discipling in God's providence. I walked up here and that's the giveaway book today. We didn't plan that. So thankful for that. If you want a copy of the, of the discipling book, grab it after the service. There'll be a copy out there for you. But a simple definition is helping others follow Jesus. This is a definition of discipling. And certainly Paul, Silas, and Timothy have helped the Thessalonians follow Jesus while they were there with him. And now they're even discipling them as they're away from them, as they're writing back to them. This is how it's worked. Paul and Silas and Timothy were following Jesus. They shared the gospel with the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were converted. By showing them how to follow Jesus, the Thessalonians are then imitating these men, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And by default, they're following Jesus because Paul and Silas and Timothy are following Jesus. So I hope you see, see how this is working. He said, Paul has said this before in other places in Corinthians, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. And so they're discipling one another, helping each other follow Jesus um, while they're away and while they're there. Helpful illustration for this. Many of you know that I'm a devoted Braves fan, an Atlanta Braves fan. And so, uh, so is Liam, my two-year-old, if you didn't know that. Uh, I would like to say that this is of his own choosing, but here's the reality. I spend hours of my week with Liam. When I get home, we pull out his Braves bat and his Braves balls, and he puts on his Braves hat, and we have batting practice, okay? When uh, I watch the Braves, oftentimes he's standing there with me. He's wearing his jersey. He's wearing his hat. The reality is, is that he didn't choose the Atlanta Braves. He's imitating me. He wants to wear his jersey when I wear my jersey. He wants to wear my hat when I wear my hat. He wants to play Braves baseball, oftentimes, because I want to play Braves baseball. And so uh, when I cheer, he cheers. He probably doesn't even know that there's another team, but he likes the Braves because he's imitating me. A couple Sundays ago uh, in the lobby, Mr. Steve Johnson knew that we had gone to the zoo the day before, 
And he came up to Liam. Liam was on my shoulders. And he said, hey, Liam, did you, do you like the bears? Referring to the bears at the zoo. And Liam looked at him funny and said, no, daddy likes the braves. <laughs> and so I looked at Steve and said, that's discipleship right there. That's, that is discipleship. And so uh, he's, he's imitating me along the way. The only reason he knows about the Braves, the only reason he even has an interest in the Braves is because he's, he's imitating me. It's his discipleship in a secular sense. He's just imitating what he, what he sees. And so the Thessalonians are imitating what they see in Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They're being disciples. And it doesn't stop here because disciples make disciples who make disciples. Let's look at verse 7. Verse 7 says this. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This is how discipleship works. As we follow Jesus, we offer an example to imitate. The Thessalonians are offering an example to imitate all throughout Macedonia. I just want to be clear here before we continue that when I refer to discipleship, this goes beyond the the discipleship structures of the church. So the discipleship structures of the church are really important. Core class, community groups, students, kids, men's, women's, and and other areas of discipleship that that we have here. But discipleship must become a way of life amongst us. Sometimes it looks like once a week lunch meetings over the gospel of Mark. Sometimes it looks like uh, lunch meetings and getting together and reading uh, a good book together. Other times it looks like, uh, like an older Christian uh, uh, discipling a younger Christian. Sometimes it looks like a younger, more mature Christian discipling an older, uh, older individual who's a new Christian. Whatever it looks like, I would encourage you, find someone who's following Jesus and imitate them. And then by doing so, they will help you imitate the Lord, as verse 6 says. And then you become an example, as Paul says, or you become a discipler of others. If you don't know where to start, find someone to read scripture with. Find someone to read the gospel of Mark with. I'd be happy to help you identify ways to make this happen. So feel free to reach out to me, Pastor Donald, or, or another friendly face in our church family to help you with that. In fact, uh, just a, a little jump start. There's a, a little blue book out in the, out in the foyer in our uh, book area. Uh, it's called um, How Can I Find Someone to Disciple Me? It's a really short little booklet. There's four copies. I would encourage you, if you want to know what does it look like to be discipled, what does it look like for me to disciple, grab that copy afterwards, uh, read it, uh, share it with somebody else, and, and that may help you to become a part of this discipleship culture as I tr- as, at our church. It might help you get a little jump start. But the Thessalonians were converted. They were discipled. And now their example is spreading all around Macedonia. Paul's imitating Jesus. They're imitating Paul and Jesus. And now others, others are imitating the Thessalonians and Jesus. Their example is spreading. Others are beginning to hear how this group of Thessalonians heard the gospel message and are being transformed by it. Evangelism is happening. People are looking, looking at the Thessalonians and saying, man, those, there's something different about those people. Discipleship is ramp- rampantly happening among these people. It's becoming what seems to be part of the DNA of who they are, evangelists and disciplers. And what's so beautiful about this, though, is the circumstances in which the Thessalonians are receiving the word. Verse 6 says, They received the word in much affliction, but they did so with joy of the Holy Spirit. They, they received the word in much affliction but they did so with the, wor- with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The cost of discipleship was great for the Thessalonians. There was real social harassment 
for those that follow Jesus in Thessalonica. Acts 17, that Dala read earlier, gives us some context for this. We saw that when Paul was proclaiming the gospel in Thessalonica, you had Jews in particular, who are the ones that are jealous, the text says, and this is where the harassment comes in, because they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason, who was helping, who was a new Christian, it seems, who was helping Paul out at the time. And then when they couldn't find Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they dragged Jason. And then it says others before the authorities. It cost Christians in Thessalonica something to follow Jesus. And then later on in Acts 17, when the Jews heard of Paul and Silas taking the gospel to Berea, they went and stirred up uh, an uproar there too. And so I would imagine that this continued. We have one account of this in Acts 17, but Jason's being dragged off. Others are being dragged off. They're running to another city and making an uproar. I would imagine they're constantly facing um, uh, they're constantly uh, facing pushback when they're continuing to follow Jesus. On top of the hostility of the Jews, the text says that the Gentiles in Thessalonica are worshiping idols. So think of the context. You have these passionate Jews who are stirring an uproar. You have the Gentiles uh, who are worshiping these, uh, worshiping these idols. Verse 9, it says that these, in fact, these Christians, verse 9, turn to God from idols to worship the true and the living God, this city was a mess. You got the Jews who are passionate. You got the Gentiles who are worshiping all these gods. And then uh, it's implied in Acts 17 and in the text here that maybe there was even a mixture of the two, that there was people who said they were Jews, but they were also polytheistic. And so the city was a, it was, was, a, was a mess. And there was much affliction. They were experiencing much affliction and suffering as they were following Jesus in this place. But their godly endurance has led to the gospel being spread even beyond Thessalonica to Macedonia and to Achaia. Church family, the way that you respond to affliction, the way that you respond when affliction strikes is a way that you can disciple others and be an example for all to see. The way that you respond when affliction strikes is a way that you can disciple others and help others follow Jesus. Those watching the Thessalonians were amazed. Wow, look at those Christians in Thessalonica who are trusting Christ and following him amidst their houses being bombarded by mobs and being dragged off to the authorities. They've turned from idols and now they're worshiping the true God. Wow, look at these brothers and sisters in Thessalonica who are following Jesus. You see, the reason they were, they were able to give reports that they turned from worthless idols and to the true and the living God is because the context in which they were following Jesus, their example was all the more impactful because of the affliction that they were facing. It proves that their former idols were, were worthless and that Christ is living and true because they persevered, they endured, they were changed by Christ, they were discipled, they were following Jesus, and they were helping others do the same. Your affliction, your suffering might look much different, but your response to trust Christ and find joy in the Holy Spirit can be the same. Others may see that you're following Jesus amidst your personal suffering. And the fact that you have joy and hope in Christ amidst that suffering displays the gospel for others to see. And to so find hope, church family, find hope if you're experiencing affliction, if you're experiencing suffering, because you can find joy in Christ, you can find hope in him, as we're about to look at in just a minute, and others looking on, you're able to disciple them. And you're able to be an example for them and the way that you respond to these difficulties. 
For the Thessalonians, this example is displayed amidst affliction, making their endurance all the more powerful and exemplary, which leads to our third point that the church should show evidence of endurance. So the church should show evidence of conversion, the church should show evidence of discipleship, and the church should show evidence of endurance. This is what Paul emphasizes in verse 10. It says this, they've, so they've turned from their idols to serve the living and true God, and right here is key, and to wait for, the, for his son from heaven. To wait for his son from heaven. They're waiting with hopeful anticipation for the return of Christ. This is a theme traced through all throughout the letter. So as we go throughout 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be talking about longing for Christ, enduring. This is going to be a really, uh, a really prominent theme throughout the book. And this too is evidence of their faith, that they're living their lives in a way that, that would please the Lord as they wait for the, him to return. This is an active trust that Christ will do what he says he will do, that, that Christ will come again. Their hope is in Christ, who is not dead, as the text says, that he's living. Just as he said he would rise again on the third day and did, they are trusting that he will come again as he says he will do. And we should trust this as well. The hope that they have in Christ is what helps them endure the affliction. Because through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, Christ has delivered the Thessalonians from the wrath to come. Did you see that in the text? From the wrath to come. Verse 10, the last part of verse 10. He raised him from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is a clear gospel connection. The Thessalonians are hoping in the basic truths of the gospel here. Their idol worshiping and sinful hearts separated from God made them deserving of God's wrath. But Paul says in verse 10 that Jesus delivers us from this wrath that is to come. This is the gospel. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he delivers us from the wrath to come when the word hits us in power, when we repent and believe. And so this is why these Christians serve the Lord while they wait his return, because the affliction will come to an end. The wrath of affliction, earthly affliction, endures just a little while, but the wrath of God that this text is referring to lasts forever, but not for Christians. That's the hope that the Thessalonians have. The wrath that they're enduring will only be for a little while, but the wrath of God apart from Christ endures forever, but not for Christians because his wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross. All who place their trust in him will be delivered. This is the gospel. If you've never heard the gospel before, this is the gospel. This is the, the, the core truth of the gospel, that Jesus paid for our sins on the cross, that he absorbed the wrath of God for your sin. This is what we're longing for as a church family. We're hoping in the gospel that we will once for all be delivered from our sin, that we will be glorified, that we will be with God forever, completely separated from any temptation, any suffering, any affliction, any challenge, any effect of sin. Forgive my second Braves illustration, but the Braves just won the World Series, so I'm going to uh, get them out of my system here. I was two years old in 1995 when the Braves won their last World Series. Um, so I certainly don't remember it at two years old. I was Liam's age. Uh, but soon after, I became a diehard Braves fan. And so, man, it's been a long 26 years. I've had to en endure some good, some good teams, some good seasons, but also some really bad seasons, never, never winning a championship. It's pretty painful, 26 years. 
I never got to experience my team winning at all until this year, 2021, November 2021. I'll remember, I'll remember this, this month for a long time. I got to stand before the TV with my, wearing my Braves jersey with a bunch of guys holding up a trophy. And it, was, it seems like it was boring now, but in the moment, man, it was good. It, it felt fulfilling because my team won. It wasn't as anticlimactic as it, as it sounds here. But the point is that following Jesus and waiting for his return is worth it. Far more worth it than waiting for your team to win a championship. It's far more worth it than that. I got to stand in front of a TV and experience my team winning it all. And the wait was good. But when we get to stand before God, enduring affliction, hoping in Christ, and we get to stand before him and we're delivered from his wrath forever, and there will be no affliction, there will be no sting of sin, there will be no effects of sin whatsoever, this is worth it. This is worth it. Wrath is coming for sinners, and, but all who trust in Christ will be delivered from this wrath. If you haven't trusted in Christ today, I would urge you right here, trust in Christ. He paid for your sins. He took God's wrath for you. Trust in him. Christian, if you're trusting in Christ, find hope in this. Use this to fight temptation. Use this to help you to endure. The Thessalonians were enduring. They were remembering that Christ took the wrath of God for them. And Paul was thankful for this. Their steadfastness, their endurance was inspired by their hope in Christ. Church family, when you're faced with temptation, are you fighting it with all you have, with your hope fixed on Jesus coming again and your full deliverance from sin, your glorification? Continue to take next faithful steps to keep fighting for faith. Keep repenting of your sin. Keep turning toward Christ every single day. Christ endured the cross so that you can endure temptation and affliction and one day be, be delivered from it. Christ endured the cross so that you can endure. Church family, there's so much that I thank God for about you. There's so much that I thank God for about our church. I was reminded of that this week. The evidence of conversion, the evidence of discipleship, the evidence of endurance that I see in so many of your lives, it encourages me. And I would encourage you to think in similar categories, to think about ways that you see these evidences in the life of our church, and to take time this week to thank God for them, to thank God for individuals that you see this grace in, to thank God uh, collectively for the ways you see this uh, areas of God's grace around the life of our church. Is there evidence of discipleship and evidence of durance inspired by hope in Christ in this, in this place? Yes, there is, and so we can thank God for that. Is there that evidence in your own life? The one who has delivered you from the wrath to come, Jesus Christ paid for your sin, he took God's wrath. So look to him this week. Look to him who will help you to endure, help you to follow Jesus, and thank him for the evidence of grace that you see in your life, in others' life, and in the life of our church. Let's close by thanking God for the gospel, for his grace displayed in our church, and then remembering the gospel and his deliverance from the wrath to come by taking the Lord's Supper together. So let me pray. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus that he paid for our sins on the cross. 
Father, when we see Christ paying for our sins, this leads us to humility. When we see that Christ didn't stay dead after taking your wrath for our sins, but that he rose again and he will come again, that gives us hope. And so I pray for, for the Christians in this room that we would find hope in that, for the non-Christians in this room, that they would realize that they are destined for this wrath and that they would turn to Christ so they would be delivered from it. I pray for our church family, that the discipleship culture would be rampant among us, that we would not only tell the truth about Jesus through evangelism, but that we would help others follow Jesus through discipleship. I pray that this would become the DNA of who we are. I pray that we would become a thankful church, that we would grow in our thankfulness, Lord. Father, I pray that you'd help us to endure to the end amidst affliction that we face as we wait for the return of Christ with hope. Lord, we know that you will come again. Just as you have paid for our sins, you will and arose again. You will come again as you promised. So Father, help us to follow Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.